Welcome to Australian Hunger, I'm your host Ben. On today's show, I've been interviewing with Stone Sovereign. Their new album, Tales of Myth and Madness, is out now, and they're going on tour later this week. Um, I'll give you some of the details before we get into the interview. But even before that, I want to briefly discuss a story which really caught my attention the other week. I, I To me, it, it sounds nuts. It's absolutely insane. I think it's kind of indicative of a lot of stuff I've talked about on this show during these sort of banter segments. And it's about Spotify, unsurprisingly. Two things have happened recently that have caught the attention of publishers and artists. One is that the US Copyright Royalty Board decided that streaming payouts from Spotify and other companies would rise by 44% or more between 2018 and 2022. Spotify has lodged an appeal, unsurprisingly. But also, concurrently with that, Spotify informed publishers because of the complexity related to how it calculated certain plans and that coinciding with these changed rates, that these publishers in fact owed Spotify money that had previously been paid out to them in 2018. And actually, they are not happy about that. And I'm going to read a little bit from the Music Business Worldwide article on the topic. One senior figure in the music publishing industry told MBW, Spotify is clawing back millions of dollars from publishers in the US based on the new CRB rates that favour the DSPs while appealing the wider CRB decision. This puts some music publishers in a negative position. It's unbelievable. Spotify isn't expecting the publishers to hand back over the money that's owed right away. Instead, this negative balance will be treated as an advance by the company, which will be recouped from its 2019 royalty payouts to publishers and, by association, their songwriters. This is a crazy system. This is a crazy system where the money that you get because you've given permission to a particular streaming platform to play your music for their subscribers and therefore they're going to give you some form of money back for that and you end up owing the streaming service money. Like, how is this a model which can be sustainable? Uh, Later on in the article, it's noted that uh, it's noted by a guy that Spotify is in fact using the law to its advantage by attempting to reclaim the money while contesting the ruling itself. So obviously, this could be really damaging for some publishers. I imagine some uh, some who are not the giants will be struggling because they're in a difficult business model, a business model which is in constant flux, doesn't really get the money that it, it really deserves, and this is just an added pressure. The, the fact is that Spotify is a company and it, it'll do anything in its power to ensure that it pays less money, including contesting a ruling by the Copyright Royalty Board. What other, what other board should be doing this if not the Copyright Royalty Board? And they're contesting it because <laughs> the minimal amount that they pay uh, the, the publishers and therefore the artists to actually make this music, which they rely on, they don't want to pay, pay more. <laughs> God, it's music. There are a lot of businesses that are in flux, but music. Wow, oh wow. Wow, oh wow. So I interviewed Jordan Giblet and Greg Perry, who are the vocalist and guitarist, respectively, for Stone Sovereign. Um, as I mentioned, their new album, Tales of Myth and Madness, is out now. And they're going to be touring the East Coast on their tour of Myth and Madness tour in July, playing it. And I'm going to read a long list for you. Newcastle on the 4th, Canberra on the 5th, Wollongong on the 6th, Sydney on the 7th, Wondonga on the 10th, Faulkner on the 11th, Geelong on the 12th, and Melbourne on the 13th. And they're also going to be playing on Dubbo on the 17th of August and Orange on the 7th of September. I played two songs during the interview, The Cradle of Life and Across the Boiling Sea. This is Stone Sovereign. 
So I want to go back to the real beginning of the band when there were uh, tombs, uh, tombs of ruin. Tomes of ruin. Tomes of ruin. I haven't seen the word tomes in a while. Um, But talk a little bit about how that sort of predecessor to this band got started. Would you like me to take that one, John? Uh, Yeah, it might be an idea because I was only in Tomes of Ruin for about a a week before we, about a week or a month before we changed the name and reinvented ourselves. Uh, yeah, Tomes of Ruin, uh, was just myself, uh, bass player Clint, um, our drummer Matt, and, uh, we had a, another guy on, uh, guitars and vocals. We, we sort of did it for, uh, three or four years, but didn't really go anywhere. There was a bit of a, uh, conflict of, I guess, uh, direction between the rest of us and, uh, the other member. So uh, they ended up leaving, and we we thankfully found uh, Jordan, um, which I think we lost the last guy. Was it Jordan like two weeks before a show or something? Yeah. Um. T- uh, so it was about two weeks before a show uh, at one at a venue in Orange here, and um, I get a, oh, this is I I was in a band called Infested Entrails for a while, and uh, this was just after I got dismissed from there, and I get a message from Greg about a week after that asking if I could fill in. For a show in two weeks, and I just said, "Yeah, no worries. That sounds like fun." So, yeah, that's basically where where I came from. Yeah, we uh, we got him to try out on uh, was it Guardians or Pursuit of Vikings? Uh, Pursuit of Vikings. That's right, classic. Um, heard heard his vocals, thought that was great. He he got an instant pass, and um, then we got uh, George Olson, our other guitarist, uh, who played in Deprivation for a few years. Um, and he joined us. On, I know George from way back as well. Uh, yeah, and then changed the name to Be Our Now. So. How'd you go about picking that name? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I, I thought it sounded all right. <laughs> uh, it, it sort of ties in with a lot of the the fantasy themes uh, and sort of homebrew lore that we've come up with. Um, base a lot of the songs around and part of that is the stone sovereign is one of the i guess featuring characters in that law it's mm. a good it's also it's also a good way to, to um check uh people's knowledge of the english language because a lot of them don't know how to pronounce it or spell it so that's also fun uh, rain. <laughs> yeah i get i get a lot so where does he just sort of general interest in, I don't know, folk, Viking, fantasy, themes, concepts? Where does that come from? Well, um, my my interest in fantasy and stuff like that mainly comes from video games and books and stuff like that. Not so much the Viking side. Um, that's a bit more Greg's territory because I don't really know that much about it. Yeah, it's... Um, Viking metal is such a weird thing because it's not really a metal genre in itself but you know you think about it it's just melodic death oak metal with viking themes so i guess in that sense we aren't really viking metal because uh are really about vikings per se uh we have those that are sort of our take on it but we're definitely somewhere between uh i guess the the melodic death and the and the folk metal theme uh we were recently likened to a skeleton witch i think is that sort of more melodic black metal sound as well, which is it. So let's get into the album. Um, 
when do you guys sort of start working on this? I imagine there's some materials been in the pipeline for a while, but when did you guys decide, hey, we actually want to start working on an album, release a album, focus on that? It would have been, we've been working on these songs for years, John? Yeah, about a few years. Um, I think the aim was to always get an album together. Just, um, yeah, just kind of culminated in late last year, early this year. Yeah, I think we um, originally we were talking about an EP and then we just went, you know what, we've got the songs. Let's just go all out and let's do our first album. Yeah. <laughs> Rick's got, uh, he's already started writing riffs and whatnot for the next one. I've already started putting together some lyrics and whatnot as well. So it's it's full steam ahead so far. Now you guys released uh, a few EPs before that. Um did you learn anything? Did you sort of take anything from those ones? I don't know, sort of technically or or musically that you kind of applied for this one? Do a warm-up track with vocals, especially before you um, do a proper t- take, because they always sound like shit the first time. Uh, I think Clint learned a lot too. Like he's done um, most of our actual recording, like technically. He's come so far since we did our first EP now. A huge difference. Otherwise, just general. Uh, I guess I think our songwriting has definitely improved. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, since the early times of Ruin days. Yeah. Find the sound a bit. So, so sort of going to that kind of topic more specifically, like how do you guys write? What, what members of the bands are involved? How, how do you approach that? Uh, so Greg uh, mainly did uh, uh, most of the lyrics for this album. I had a few tweaks in there. Only the full songs that I did were uh, ba- two tracks and about half of another one. But um, that's not really an issue because it was so far. It was just the start of Greg's story so far, and we we're all planning on contributing with the next stuff to add on to that as well. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm demanding that the, the next album is is way more of the rest of the band. Um, but, I mean, that said, you know, I came up with a lot of the main riffs and, and yeah, a lot of the lyrics in this case, but um, as far as vocal rhythms, you know, that's your domain because I can't do that for shit. Uh, drums, our, our drummer has to take care of that because I have no idea about drums. Bass player writes all his own parts. Uh, and George, the other guitarist, fantastic. It just, no matter what I give him, he just makes it better. <laughs> I don't know how he does it, but he's, just, he's got a gift. So let's, let's take you in isolation, Greg. Like, You want to either come up with a riff or sort of move a song forward musically. H- how do you go about that? Is there, I know, particular I know, places you have to be, moods you have to be in? How do you approach all that? Uh, look, I've tried many times to help to write something, um, and it always comes out really bad. So I think... Um, I get I get inspiration for riffs at the weirdest times. I've had them when I was listening to the weird sounds my washing machine was making uh, at work. Wait, really? When I'm really bored, <laughs> um, it'll just a sound will just pop in there like a melody or a rhythm. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I, I sort of build it from there. But usually I can get a couple of riffs in, uh, and then I just get stumped. And then that's that's where I really love to be able to take it to the boys and say, right, what can you do with this? Um, and then that really helps to get over that hurdle. Um, and usually, I think, you know, we, we end up with a, a much better product than it would have been just, you know, by myself. 
myself. I don't know if this is you, Greg, but there's a blues solo in A Binding of Sea and Stone, which sort of stood out to me, just because it's kind of a, I don't know, a different way of playing, a slightly different tone to it um, than sort of the, the rest of the, the the song. Talk a little bit about how that particular part came about, if you can if you can recall. Uh, yes, yeah, so which. The solo in Binding is in two parts. Um, one of them is me and the other one is George. Um, so we, we split that solo. Me and George actually both hate playing lead. Um, and we often have little friendly debates about who gets to play the lead bit. Has to play the lead bit. Yeah, who has to play the lead bit. Um, most of the time I've managed to win and George ends up playing it, which I'm thankful for. Uh, yeah, we, we have both very much rhythm guitarists, so our, even our solos and our leads tend to be less flashy. Uh, George is a, a huge fan of the sort of 70s and 80s blues and, and hard rock um, scene, so that really does come through in his lead playing, particularly. Uh, I think it adds another element to the song where you, you might have a really heavy section, you know, the more traditional thrashy sound or a mic are really folky and then just to be able to add a different element in and throw some of that blues rock sound particularly some distinctive licks and the George's spot on bends um, I think it really just takes it to another level yeah there's not I'm not sure what else to say um, so the song sort of I don't know coming together at whatever stage it is Jordan, when do you come into the process to start laying down some vocal ideas and, um, I don't know, start adapting or, or uh, some lyrics for a particular song or trying to flesh out how they fit into a particular song? Well, I, I get a good outline from Greg, usually, with, with the vocal uh, harmonies and whatnot. But um, sometimes it, it's not practical to breathe that way when you're doing vocals, so I just kind of, like fit it around like where you can do a, a convenient breath so you've got a lung full of air so you can do a long ring out scream or something like that at the end of a verse and and stuff like that um it's guitar- basically working out it's ba- <laughs> what was that i'm a guitarist i forget that you need to breathe yeah so um it's ba- it's basically taking uh that consideration in mind and working with what sounds good and what is also practical to do talking about the lyrics more generally and um sort of i think I, i'm guessing that both of you can sort of take this in the proportion that you wrote the lyrics, but how did you approach them? Um, I sort of gather that there's kind of a, a world-building exercise that is involved as well. Talk a little bit about how that sort of worked for, for, for this album. Um, well, the, there was a couple of... There was two, basically, there's two songs that didn't have lyrics, which I did the lyrics for... Um, they they're not so much intertwined into the world building that the rest of the songs are, but one of them, uh, Cradle of Life, I got the idea from that from watching some documentary about how the universe was formed, or it was a YouTube video about physics and stuff like that. And um, so yeah, I got that idea from that because I couldn't think of anything else for it. Um, and I was also playing a lot of Overwatch at the time, so I managed to uh, snipe in a few references to that game. Uh, and Scarred and Burned, that's an old one. We, um, we record, we did a rough recording of that 
for an on- online release a few years back and it's just kind of redefined as a story about a kid who basically meets a dragon and goes and burns a lot of shit. So that's how that one came about. We should say Scarred and Burned is actually only on the physical copy of the album. Oh, I forgot um, about that. You may not have heard it, actually. Ah! Yeah, it's a sneaky bonus track, so it's only on the physical. So if anyone wants to hear that, they have to get a CD. Old school stuff. Greg, in terms of, like, there's a couple of sort of things that I was sort of browsing the lyrics about and noticed that they sort of carry on. There's obviously a sort of broader, I don't know, uh, characters, uh, um, I don't know, religious aspects. Talk a little bit about where they come from, the influence, the the inspiration for those. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, there's a few recurring characters. Uh, throughout the album, Eldred Baines is obviously the the main one. He's our uh, our Argon people's first king. So songs, if I remember them in order, uh, three, four, five, six, and seven are actually all about his story, essentially. Um, so it's it's his and his people's rise to power um, as a nation in their own right. Uh, and then the sort of the later songs. Are more, I guess. Um, I guess there's a couple of hero songs in there. Like, sort of, you always hear about the the folk legends, of, you know, like King Arthur. Everyone's yeah. got that sort of cultural legend. Uh, They're kind of like the aftermath for the whole thing, like what happened after the time of Eldred and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. It's like a continuation of their history, um, and you know, later mythology, I guess. Uh, and you you were right, Greg. It was three, four, five, six, and seven. Oh, spot on. <laughs> I think uh, as far as inspiration for all that goes, you know, it's it's really, there is so much in particularly, um, you know, like the battle between the, um, I'm going to blank on the name now. Archite? Uh, the, yeah, the, the Archite and the Argon people is sort of, you know, you could transfer that to the Teutonic Order um, and the Lithuanian pagans uh, just about anywhere that, sort of monotheistic religion and paganism clashed, um, particularly because the Argon are very Viking-esque in the way that they are sea raiders, you know, they, they come from across the ocean. Uh, you know, even the invasion of Nirida, which we talk about um, in a couple of the songs, and the sort of merging of cultures is very much inspired by uh, the Scandinavian movement into Britain. Um, and the sort of blending of the Saxon culture. Mm, very interesting. I love when people sort of adapt to pre-existing ideas because they kind of, I know, they're so malleable and uh, I don't speak for a lot of kind of things that are sort of happening universal. <laughs>
little bit more broader, why don't you pick the title for the album? That was a struggle. We yeah, couldn't actually think of anything to call it for a fair while. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think we tossed out the idea of, of naming it after one of the songs. Yeah, across the boiling sea. Yeah, that was that was going to be it. I think for right up until we changed it to this, I think it was across the boiling sea. Yeah, it was hard to think up a title for it. Yeah, and I, I sort of wanted to try and put that that storytelling element. So I like the idea of tales of something, uh, and given the I guess the religious and mythological overtones that a lot of the songs have, I guess, myth um, worked well. And because Across the Boiling Sea um, features uh, a lot of talk of madness and the, the ship's crew being driven mad by the, this mysterious fog um, in the ocean, then it just seemed fitting, you know, to, to still include that song in the name somewhere. So we sort of came up with that took it to the boys and everyone went yeah sounds good let's do that and it doesn't it doesn't also doesn't have to be madness in the you know insanity sort of thing because a lot of stuff that happens in the story is quite mad if you think about it oh yeah for sure it's ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) this guy's shooting lightning bolts and and breaking off continents and all sorts of craziness and a bunch of ogres you know just getting absolutely pummeled by just some bloke with a spear it's it's pretty cool yeah, yeah. There's some. That's, I guess, the that heroic tale type situation. It's, you're never really sure how true they are. Who did the artwork, and, and what was their brief? Uh, so artwork was done um, by All Things Rotten, um, which is a, a European company. One guy, as far as I can tell, his name is Andre. I cannot pronounce his last name, and I do apologise to Andre. Uh, <laughs> he's brilliant at what he does i've we've used him before um for uh, logos and things like that and he's he's great because he requires very little prompting and he just gets it so i think the brief to andre was we want to have we had the book we we wanted the book um and i said you know it's called tales of myth and manners we we want to sort of focus it about this storytelling and the book of histories and and he went, yep, say no more. And then he came back with the design that we ended up with. And I was like, that is fantastic. Done. Sold. I want to go on to the, the tour now. Um, you toured New South Wales in 2017, the um, Eastern Raids tour. How did that go? How does that kind of, I don't know, you're embarking on a larger tour. Like, how, how do you kind of feel about that now that you're kind of, um, I don't know, uh, one-upping that? Well, um, the Eastern Raids tour took part over several different weekends. This is basically taking part over two straight weeks, kind of. So um, I think it'll be a fair bit different in the fact that we're, we're not going to basically get a break from each other for those two weeks. So it should be quite interesting. Yeah, we, we keep calling this the real tour. Um, because prior to that, you know, as Jordan said, over a few weekends at a time, it, it sort of feels like they're all segmented gigs. Um, Whereas we said this time, you know what, if we're going to tour this album, let's let's do a real one. Let's go two weeks straight, as long as we can. Uh, and thanks to Carl French from Gersal Promotions, who's helped... Much us. love. Yeah, much love for Carl. He's handled most of the booking, uh, promotion stuff. The guy's fantastic. And he's um, letting us stay at his house for two days, so that's all, also nice of him. Yeah, out, out at Narandera, so we're going to do some fishing out there. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah. 
So this Always is the fishing. Here. Yeah, I love fishing. So thanks <laughs> to Carl, we've, we've got this, you know, two-week chunk of shows now, um, which is a little bit intimidating just because, as Jordan said, we're going to be stuck with each other for a while. Uh, but I think it'll be good. You know, it's kind of one of those um, make or breaks, really. Like, you either can do it or you can't. So about time we see if we can. Yeah. So what are you guys doing to prepare for that tour? Uh, so at practice uh, on next week, we're going to do a mock load up to see exactly what we can fit in the cars that we're taking. Um, we're writing out some... Um, budgeting for food and whatnot i'm also putting together some grocery lists for stuff you know just to snack on on the road so we don't have to stop constantly and blow a bunch of money on fast food and all that other stuff yeah, it's really boring stuff to be honest like it sounds yeah. you, know, when you say like how do you prepare for the tour you know it's not extra practice or you know weird sort of things like that like making costumes it's really much just budgeting making the grocery lists and working out routes and booking accommodation. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like going on a holiday, really, with four other guys. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you guys approach a show? What, what are you trying to do when you play live? Not sound bad. It's <laughs> the, the first aim, really. Um, I don't know. It's trying to get over this sort of stage fright for me at least trying to get over this sort of stage fright and try and convey like stuff that's happening with my hands in a limited way that I can kind of sort of thing. And, you know, trying to project nicely and get the audience engaged is also a big thing as well. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess for me, like you'll, you'll always be nervous. I think that the moment that you don't get at least a little bit nervous before a show, uh, you know, is the, is the moment you don't care enough to be nervous. Um, I think it's, so, you know, once you get past that, it's more for us, we're trying to bring a bit of the atmosphere behind the story. That's why we, we dress up in the tunics and bits of armor on stage, uh, on the face paint. Um, it's, you know, Jordan's got his epic robes. It's more or less trying to bring people into that world a little bit um, to make it a bit more atmospheric as well as just the music. Uh, how, how does it feel, like, performing in costume? Like, um, I'm sort of thinking more just on, a, like, a, a sort of comfort level. How, how does that feel? Feels fine for me because... Um, so, basically, my thing is I do makeup in the car park and get into the gear and whatnot and because after we finish this sh- after we finish the show it's all running all down my face i have to remove it and it's kind of funny to see who can recognize you after the after a show without the makeup on um oh the wollongong story jordan oh yeah yeah um i we played a show at dicey rollers in wollongong was this last year or the year before i think it was last year um so i was on stage and a guy mistook me for a a, a woman and um he came up to Clint afterwards and asking, "Oh, where's your singer at? That uh, that 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 death metal girl? Where's she at?" And Clint just kind of gives so him, hot, man. <laughs> yeah, kind of gives him this bewildered look, saying, um, "He's right behind you, and it's a guy." And the, the guy just couldn't believe it. It was quite a, it was quite amazing. I didn't know whether to be flattered or insulted, really. 
I still think to this day we should have run with it. <laughs> it would have been too good. But I think, yeah, the costumes, um, the face paint is a bit of a, can be a bit of a pain. Um, I always end up with coal miner face for like a week after I've used it. I'll um, use a white, right makeup remover, man. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Well, normally I just use like motel bath towels, those nice white ones, <laughs> and just smother it in those. But uh, the tunics are actually incredibly comfortable. They breathe really well. Um, I'd rip the sleeves off just about everything that I own. So, you know, you've got maneuverability, breathability. It's a nice change. Um, just about everyone wears tunics on stage. Yeah, my costume, um, it was actually a, a gift for me from um, one of my best mates, Josh Slattery, Joshua Slattery, who also did the artwork for um, the uh, Across the Boiling Sea video. And that thing is great to wear on stage. It's quite breathable and nice and flowy and wizardy looking. So it's also awesome to wear. It does get a bit hot occasionally, but in which case you just kind of have to take the robe off and wear the tunic underneath. And yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah, the um, the costumes in general, I reckon they're more comfortable than playing in normal clothes. Um, and it kind of, it helps to put you in that mindset where for that short gig, you know, you're someone else. You, know, you're, you can imagine you're a bit more part of the story that you're trying to tell rather than just sort of standing on stage like an idiot. Or a really hot death metal chick. Yeah, well, you can be both in your case. Beautiful. Uh, I want to finish up with a couple of questions about you guys and your backgrounds. Um, sort of first up, you guys are from Orange, which is a town, a town or a, a city. I don't know which would, which would you it's call it. Technically, technically, it's a city, <laughs> a rural city. Mm, so Orange is what I describe it. Yeah, yeah. So Orange City, I think it's like two hundred and fifty kilometers or so west of Sydney for people's. I know to get a perspective of where it's sort of located, um, yeah, but like, but, but sort of in general, um, obviously people's attention is very much focused on the the capital cities of each state, and that's sort of where scenes or um, I don't know gigs, all those sort of things tend to be located um, in general. Talk a little bit about what it's like to from a sort of non-capital city what the scene is like in Orange sort of how you approach that as, as a band well the metal scene in Orange is actually is, it, it, it was a lot bigger back uh, like ten, nearly 10 5, 10 years ago would it be Greg? Uh, yeah you know 10 years ago it was probably it's, it's peak we had heaps of bands around that time yeah um, but still there's a few there's a couple of bands it's mainly in Orange especially, um, it's basically us um, and Infested Entrails who do a lot of the stuff. Um, infested Entrails and Gangrene Penis and Terra Mortem who do a lot of the sh- do a lot of the shows and whatnot. Um, and I mean, a lot of people do show up to the metal shows in Orange, but it's just a shame we can only do one a year pretty much at the moment. Yeah, when we um, you know when we put them on, packed out venue every time, so. The metal scene here is definitely alive. We're just sort of lacking in, in musicians that want to play. Um, and venues. I mean, we, it's easy enough to... um, it, Well, not easy, but we can get bands to come play in Orange. Like, we had Beast Impaler come play uh, last September, which was really, really great. That was awesome. Um, but, yeah, as I said, um, the Vic, where we 
pretty much do all our shows at in, here in Orange. Um, it's always full to bursting when when there's a metal night on. So, yeah, yeah, and that's pretty much the only only live music venue that also has a bar and you know accommodates everyone nicely. But I think uh, I guess the only downside of being out here, other than that, is having to travel so far for a show. Um, you know, we can't just sort of go to the next suburb. We've got to drive three hours if we want to get anywhere. Uh, the closest place outside of here we play is Dubbo, and even that's just over two hours. Mm. Um, so distance is a bit of a killer, but, uh, you know, we played quite a few shows locally in Dubbo. Um, we travelled to Canberra a fair few times. Sydney, Wollongong. not so much, but, you know, it's weird. Yeah, Wollongong heaps. We love playing in Wollongong. Yeah, Wollongong's great. Um, where else was there? We played in Albury. Uh, we played in Wagga Wagga a few times, but even then, yeah, that's a, that's a five-hour drive as opposed to a three-hour one. Yeah, it gets a bit rough. <laughs> yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Um, going sort of back to basics a bit more, when do you guys start listening to heavy music? Um, for me, it was around 2006, I'm pretty sure. Started listening to things like... Um, uh, got started on him. That was a big one. It's still one of my favorite bands. I cop a lot of shit for it from a bunch of metal guys here in Orange. But uh, then I got other stuff like Cradle of Filth and whatnot. And then I discovered power metal, which I still love. And yeah, just that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, 2006 is where it pretty much started for me. Yeah, I think I was a little bit earlier. I'm a little bit older than you, but the um, I was trying to think what year I finished school. It was a long time ago now. Uh, it would have been... I was listening to sort of rock music and stuff um, in my early teens. My dad was big into it. Uh, and then I picked up metal when I, I met this new kid came to school and uh, he was a big metal fan and he gave me a mix CD of a whole bunch of different uh, metal. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, it was. It was lovely. Um, he was a bit of a dick himself, but the music was pretty good. Uh, so we got, he, he, that would have been like 2005-ish, 2004, 2005. Um, and yeah, you know, he, he got me into Iron Maiden and uh, Lord, well, then was Dungeon, the Australian band. Um, bit of Dragon Force, which was a passing phase, thankfully. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then I guess through this band, I discovered more about the folk metal scene particularly, uh, and I've just fallen in love with it, really. It's all I've been listening to lately. That and I'm on a mask because you can't get past Michael. Greg, when do you start playing guitar and why did you stick with it? Uh, I started playing guitar... Well, I think I actually started on bass in 2006. Um, and I was not a very good bass player and I thought it was a horrible instrument. Um, and then uh, my stepbrother was actually trying to learn guitar and he was really struggling with it. He's got arms like an orangutan um, and massive fingers. So he was struggling and one day we just decided to swap and see what happened and neither of us looked back after that really. Um, I just went, oh wow, this, has, this is a much nicer sound and he just slapped and popped and abused that instrument to no end. Um, so it worked out for both of us really. 
Mm, if, if you're gonna, if you've got long arms, you can probably pay, play uh, the bass low, which I think is always the the best look. No, see, he's the opposite. The man really? wears it for his chin, up on his yeah, up on his chest. It's amazing yeah, to see. It's crazy. I don't even know how he plays it, but he apparently that's comfortable. He looks ridiculous, but it's comfy for him. So fair enough, I guess. Fair enough, Jordan. Vocals. When do yep. you start? Oh, uh, um, well, I originally started as a drummer. Um, I'm uh, still do a bit these days. I'm okay, just you know, nothing special. Pretty basic stuff. Uh, vocals I started doing when I was oh, it would have been ten or so years ago when I was about fifteen, sixteen. I started to learn how to uh, sing and whatnot, and vocal pitches and breathing exercises and whatnot. Uh, and then yeah, I've always been doing that for a while, and uh, I just moved on to the. I didn't really move. I always wanted to do the harsher stuff, which like what I'm doing now. So yeah, I've been doing vocals. Well, I was doing them on and off for a good oh, five, six years uh, until I joined Infested in about 2014, I think it was, when I started doing that more and more frequently, and I've just kept going since then, since I've joined Stone Sovereign. Last question, guys. What have you been listening to, watching, or reading lately? Oh, lately? Uh, so, listening to, other than driving ourselves mad with our own album, um, we've been, well, I've been listening to uh, a lot of Ailstorm, um, a fair bit of Skeleton Witch. I only just discovered them, and I'm not quite sure why it's taken me this long. <laughs> uh, but they're fantastic um, and you know after a, a lot of people said that we sound like them I uh, had a listen to that and so I've fallen a bit in love with them um, watching I don't really watch much TV or anything like that much but... hmm. uh, I've been listening to pretty steadily for the past year or so uh, Theocracy um Serenity and Glory Hammer. Um, I just quite like them. I can't explain why. I just do. Uh, reading. I've been reading um, Name of the Wind, which I quite like. I've still yet to finish it, but we'll get there probably tonight or tomorrow. And watching. Um, oh, nothing really. Just background noise for reading, pretty much. <laughs> we, we've been playing D&D a bit, though. Yeah, that's true as well. I, I think, you know, given the sort of what we've been talking about, it, it sort of expand on, um, I don't know, how you approach D&D. Uh, yeah, well, I guess last, um, I'm brand new, so last campaign was my first one ever, which Jordan ran. Um, and my whole philosophy was get the axe and hit the big thing. Um, kept it pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this campaign, though, it's, it's my turn to run it, so um, it's definitely interesting seeing what it's like on the other side of the damn shield. Um, yeah, it's, it's great fun. Yeah, it can, it's a bit rough. But, um, uh, yeah. With, with how I approach it, uh, if I'm playing as a character, I basically find an archetype. So at the moment, I'm playing as a character who's basically Ace Ventura with a sword and shield, which is pretty fun. Um, yeah, so basically just find a personality and whatever's going to be fun and or funny and just run with it like that.
incomplete, triumphant and renewed. None could see the coming storm. Water hissed beneath the ships. They fulfilled the air. A world filled with terror and despair. That we heard the cradle of life both from tales of myth and madness by stone sovereign thank you to jordan and greg for chatting to me you can contact me on social media oz hunger that's aus hunger on facebook twitter and instagram you can also send me an email australian hunger at gmail.com if you've got any comments questions thoughts 
and potentially if you're in a band and you want to see if you can set up an interview, maybe we can get that going. But until next time, bye.